0: Welcome to the Podium Podcast, where we bring together leaders from the worlds of sports, media and philanthropy to discuss the people and stories that change the world. At Podium Pictures, we make impact. We encourage you to visit PodiumPictures.com to learn more about our mission. Now, here's your host, Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Brett Ratkin.
1: Welcome to the Podium Podcast. Hope you brought your racket because today we are talking tennis and mental health with Mr. Noah Rubin. Noah is originally from Long Island, New York. He was a Wimbledon Junior Singles Champion and USTA National Junior Champion. As a junior, he was the number one ranked American and ranked number six in the entire world. One of his first charitable efforts was for his bar mitzvah when he collected tennis rackets for the Israel Tennis Centers. Recently, Noah started Behind the Racket, a social media platform as well as a podcast where he talks to his fellow pro tennis players and others about their stories of depression, anxiety, and alcohol abuse. Noah is also on the advisory board for NAMI NYC and has been deeply involved with the organization. He also recently started the BTR Tour, a new tennis tour format that includes fan involvement as well as art and music, food and fashion. He thinks it's the future of tennis. I'll let you hear for yourself. All right, a very special guest today on the Podium Podcast, a podcaster of his own, a podcaster-to-podcaster conversation today. Uh, Welcome, Noah Rubin. Where are you today?
0: I'm in Long Island, New York today. Beautiful day outside. Hopefully it stays that way.
1: So what are are you up to these days? Tell us a little bit about what you're... What's your daily routines like
0: yeah it's been a, it's been an interesting year I guess everybody starts every conversation that way it seems like um, uh, but yeah I think during this time as as politicians have shown that tennis is the best sport recreationally but professionally um, it's one of the worst because of the international travel so a lot of things have been put on hold you know we've we've kind of seen um, a lack of evolution in tennis and, and arising to the time so for me it's kind of getting back to that daily love of tennis that I had a few years back that I've kind of lost over this time. But uh, yeah, practicing some and, and also a lot working, um, you know, with my own tours that I'm working on within the BTR tour and behind the racket, which has been many, many hours a day and sleepless nights.
1: My dad's a, a huge tennis player. As we speak, he's probably either either playing tennis here in Los Angeles or watching instructional videos to try to add. <laughs> A few miles per hour. It was his serve, his first serve. Um, And there was a lot of controversy in our family about whether or not he could play um, doubles during COVID because of of the risk of potentially getting COVID from his doubles partner. Mm -hmm. What's been your experience in terms of COVID protocols in your tennis life?
0: It's been interesting. I have to be honest. I didn't go as far as having different balls for my opponent and myself. That was a big one for a while was have separate balls with like your initials on it. That seemed a little over the top for me. I was just cautious of where I kind of put my hands and don't put them in your mouth or on your eyes kind of thing. And um, but yeah, again, it was it was tough. I mean, I went to France last September. I mean, that was kind of, you know, during the heart of COVID, I was uh, actually You know, when it all started, I was in Indian Wells. I was in California, um, not too far from you. When they, we got, I was at a Korean barbecue restaurant and I got an email that said, hey, we're not playing this tournament. And I was like, what is COVID and what's mask? What what do we do with this? And that was, you know, a huge turning point, I think, in the world of sports. I mean, that kind of put us in a place of saying, hey, this is serious right now. So it's been over a year since then. It's incredible.
1: So what's been your evolution in terms of, um, Deciding to start uh, behind the racket?
0: It was, you know, it's actually slightly ironic. You know, people think that I started doing it kind of at the lowest point of my career, but it was actually the highest point of my career where I started dealing with most of my mental health struggles. Um, I got to about 120 in the world and I expected more. I expected that I deserved more out of what I accomplished. And you know, mostly financially, you know, when I was, you look at other sports, top sports, and you're considering, you know, tennis is a top five international sport based on fan base. I was pocketing 40k at the end of the year at 120 in the world. So, um, you know, I just thought I expected more out of the sport. And once I started speaking to other players, I was not the only one thinking this, I was not the only one starting to feel anxiety, uh, moments of depression, Um, I know some people that deal with clinical depression and uh, alcohol abuse and and so on and so forth. So it's, I felt a responsibility to say, Hey, maybe I'm not the first one seeing this, but I have to be the first one to do something. Um, And I thought giving them a platform would be the first step and then kind of gaining notoriety around that. And then, you know, using that platform to share my own opinions. And, you know, that's where this kind of these new tours that I'm working on came to, because I saw what's happening right now, and I think a lot of other people can say this, but you know, with the ATP and WTA, which is the main organizations within the world of tennis, it's a lost cause. You know, There is no evolution. There is no real true vision of where to go from here, and I feel we're 20, 25 years behind other sports, and I wanted to work from the outside in kind of thing, and it's it's been a journey. It's been exciting, and, and I still obviously work very hard on behind the racket, but now I'm using that in the tours and giving mental health basically um you know
1: center stage
0: in what we're doing
1: when you say that the tours are 25 years behind other sports (laughs) what what is that what do you mean by that
0: um initially the first things that um that i noticed were we were we were talking about different revenue streams and how tennis makes its money um how we were looking towards the future of what was going to be big and popular and i just assumed that these were conversations that tennis already had you know, 20 years ago, because we saw the evolution a little bit in other sports and NBA and and NFL of how they've kind of developed, whether in, you know, technological advances to try to get the new generations involved um, and and stuff like that. So that's why there's just not enough money going around because we're not making use of different generations. We're not bringing in new fan base. I mean, right now our fan base, I believe is 61 years old is our average fan right now watching it on TV. I mean, you know, they get older. I mean, it's sad to say they're getting older as well, and, and we're they're not spending the money that they should, while we should be getting the next generation involved, getting them excited about the sport, which we're just not right now, um, and, and we should be capitalizing in other areas. And of course, with the financial revenue streams, you have guys that are traveling alone at you know 250 in the world of what they do. They're traveling alone, making no money, and it's a snowball effect into uh, mental health struggles that they're dealing with week in, week out.
1: Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about the finances, because I mean, certainly with the weight of gold, we I learned a ton and was able to share a lot of it through the film about the, the realities of being an Olympian and yeah, and the corresponding finances. Um, you know, what's it like for someone who's, who's looking to to break through and become uh, a champion and, and get the kind of money we see someone like Federer making?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's funny because Federer is such an extreme. We were very fortunate that on the woman's side, I believe nine of the top 10 female athletes in the world are tennis players financially making the most money per year. Um, and on the men's side, the person that makes the most money out of every male individual is Roger Federer in the world. You know, that's comparing to Ronaldo, LeBron James, you name it. Um, so the the upside is there, I guess you could say, but that's the Oh, ongoing 1%. Um, you know, for tennis players, because I have friends at MLS, you know, that's something to compare to a little bit you know, let's say they're making $80,000 a year, they make $80,000 a year, you know, with a tennis player, if you make $80,000 a year, you're paying for every expense. And that's a huge, huge problem. And then and there's not other, you know, major sports in that category, because a lot of them are team driven sports, the team's paying for a lot of those expenses with tennis, you're paying for the coach, you're paying for the training, you're paying for the travel, the hotel, the food, everything. So everything comes out and and that's averaging around fifty to $60,000 a year without having a coach. On top of that, you're paying a coach, you're paying physios. So, I mean, there's guys, I mean, I know Andre Rublev, who I believe is around nine or so in the world, had one of the best years uh, during COVID, um, said he couldn't afford his apartment because he wasn't, because they cut the prize money in half and he had to pay for a physio and a coach. So you're talking... Minimum hundred k salary plus expenses for both of them. you know, if he's if he's making, let's say, you know 500 dollars, four hundred thousand of that is is gone already, you know, before his own expenses. so it's it's a lot that goes into these expenses. and then you go into just how many people are playing the sport. It's not just the u s. and I know a lot of people are playing basketball and and football and and far more in the u s. but this is an international sport. So when I say, I'm 120. I'm 120 for anybody that picks up a racket around the world. It's not just the US where, you know, the basketball teams are you know, US and Canada, you know, it's very different. And you have league minimums, you know. Actually, hockey's my favorite sport. So, you have league minimums for hockey where you have 600 or 700 guys that are making 600 plus, you know, 600,000 plus. So, it's it's difficult. You know, you have you have a lot of struggles. There's very few times where you're actually making money um and that leads to you know tough preparation, not having somebody there to support you, and it's kind of a snowball effect after that.
1: So somebody like uh, the Wimbledon or the U.S. Open, they're getting significant TV money, I imagine, among among the sponsorship and advertising money. They're putting on an event, they're covering the costs, but you're on your own to get your get yourself there um how does it work? yes
0: yeah so for the for the top tournaments so using grand slams as the example you're paying flights so you're paying flights to get there um australian open uh, actually does help out with a little check when you a welcome check when you come in because they know they're <laughs> halfway around the world for a lot of people but yeah for the most part you pay your flights there uh you pay dinners you can eat on site for free um and and hotel is covered while you're in the tournament, so that's fairly good. But that's you're talking about four tournaments a year um, at the top of the sport, and the numbers are looking at uh, men and women combined get fourteen percent of the revenue that the tournament takes in. So you know when we're looking at other numbers of NBA salaries or anything else, you're looking at numbers from forty to fifty percent we're at 14% and that's for men and women. So 7% each. So the numbers are definitely, you know, I I argue that there's not enough revenue streams, but the budgeting is also, you know, not necessarily correct as well.
1: And those 7% for the men, is that distributed as prize money?
0: Yeah. So that 7% goes into the prize money for basically 250 players um, with obviously top heavy Especially at the U.S. Open, they love making headlines with "Hey, our you know first place winner gets four million dollars." It's like their favorite thing in the world to do. While you know the you, the person that normally wins the U.S. Open is fine endorsements wise, and he's probably making you know twenty million dollars a year minimum. That that extra million that they could take away from him could be funneled into the qualifying. Where if I made an extra five ten thousand dollars, that would be you know a world of a difference.
1: Got it. And in terms of the sport itself, are there certain improvements or or innovations to the game itself that you're you're looking to see?
0: I just don't think it's exciting. <laughs> it's it's funny. I mean, I love this sport. I dedicate my life to this sport, but you know, you take an 8-year-old to a tennis match and he gets shushed, you know, 10 minutes in, he's probably not coming to another tennis match ever again and, you know, I can't remember the last time I watched a full tennis match and especially a 3 out of 5 set tennis match where they're going 4 or 5 6 hours. You know, it's great to play. It's, you know, it's legendary matches I've played one full five set match that took about 4 hours and yeah you go through this kind of war and it's great and it's fun but at the same point that's not how tennis should be moving forward i mean god we have instagram reels and tiktoks that are 15 seconds and they seem to be too long sometimes so if we were putting on a 3 hour tennis match and nothing else is happening you're just not going to get that next generation involved so it's it's disappointing that the vision is not there and that's kind of where you know the btr tour uh my team and i's idea of just you know, switching the scoring format, making them time matches, getting a festival feel involved. So it's not just tennis. You know, I think we just allowing more sponsors to be on board, allowing fans to have the freedom to enjoy tennis the way they want to. We need that because right now we're so exclusive as a sport, but we don't have the right to be because we don't have enough fans. So it's it's disappointing.
1: Well, it seems like there's, there's always been, or at least in recent years, that kind of um, the stodgy element of, you know, Wimbledon and the know the the chocolate or the uh, strawberries and champagne and the (laughs) old england club and agassi showing up with his his outfits and kind of playing against that um is that is that kind of your vision that it can evolve into more of a a live event like an nba game where they're playing you know hip-hop music and it's more entertainment for the fans
0: a hundred percent i mean i've I've had this vision for so long and, and i think one of the biggest things is we've tried to compete with golf because we're you know a top individual sport like them but we're going to, you know, we try to be this country club sport, but we're going to lose to golf every single time. You know, it does, tennis does bring around some of the most affluent and influential people in the world, but we're still going to lose to golf when it comes to that country club feel. And for us, I mean, tennis has some of the most insane athletes in the world, and they're not showcases that because people think tennis, they think all, oh, you know, wear white, you know, you're very proper, can't say anything. But God, I mean, I have you have monsters, you have, you know, you have guys that are seven feet playing, you know, the ATP that are running, you know, 18 miles per hour on the tennis court and sliding on concrete, you know, it's just insane stuff. You have, you know, you know, Andy Murray's running, you know, 445 mile, you know, you have guys lifting and and squatting, you know, four or 500 pounds. It's, it's just not shown. We don't have that feeling to it. So I think changing the perspective, changing the whole story behind tennis and really bringing that kind of uh, that fight back to it. And that excitement, I think is is a must. And I don't know if it ever had it, but there were definitely glimpses throughout history that it was it was there a little bit more.
1: Mm-hmm. And do you think that um, Roger Federer and, and Rafa Nadal and, and Djokovic and Serena continuing to stay on top as long as they have um, is, I don't want to say holding the sport back, but do you think it's, how How do you think it affects um, more people discovering pro tennis?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think they've been amazing for the sport. I actually think we're kind of in this really crappy middle ground where, you know, we, we market the stars, we're a star driven sport, but we haven't even like done enough with them. Like, I feel like the, you know, the Williams sisters are probably the two greatest, you know, duo, maybe besides the Manning brothers, right? You know, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, but, you know, in the history of sport and and, and they're American and, and we're just not doing enough with them. And then you have, you know, Federer that, you know, is hands down between Federer and Nadal, two of the greatest athletes of all time. You know, Nadal, probably one of the most dominant athletes I've ever seen, you know, during his French Open runs. Um, and we're just not using them enough. We're not cross-pollinating them. You know, uh, Feder has done stuff with Jordan before, we have Nick Kyrgios, who's a fun guy to watch. Who's done stuff with like Kyrie Irving and other things. And but there's not enough cross pollination. We're not, you know, using other sports or music or fashion enough because we do have these, you know, transcending stars, um, but they're not utilized at all. And and you know, they're. I just don't think we're going to have athletes. So we have amazing guys coming up. You know, true, really good tennis players, but. They're not going to transcend the sport like Roger Federer has or Serena Williams necessarily has. And if we're dealing with these situations now with them in our sport, we have a long way to go when they uh, retire.
1: So shifting to talking some more about behind the racket, you mentioned a little bit, but what what made you decide to start it, and um, is it something you see yourself doing for for a long time?
0: Yeah, I think there's so many ways to go with it. I mean, I have you know dreams of of kind of making it you know, some time of of audio and and videography and stuff like that to really bring a more personal feel like way to gold has done. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, there are times because I'm doing so much else with some of these tours in my own professional career that, you know, I get a little tired, get a little lazy on the behind the racket side, to be honest, but then, you know, I have one conversation or or one interview, and I remember why I'm doing this, I remember why it's so important. And it's just, you know, I have, you know, I I laugh at it, but it's not a haha. It's just like, this is exactly why I'm doing it. I have a 36 year old man hysterically crying to me on the phone. And you know, you think about toxic masculinity, you think about opening up and you're like, shit, you know, this is the reason we're here. You know, this is the reason we're doing it's because it's not spoken about. And even though the pandemic has highlighted it, and the conversations are beginning, it's just not quite there. And we really do have to work, you know, Hard and then it takes, you know, our effort to get in there and say, Hey, this is a conversation we have to have. Let's push this forward. And especially in individual sport or the Olympics, where it is a dog dog world where you're just going up, your competitors are the only ones that know what you're going through, and you can't talk to them because you think you're weak, you think you're not strong enough, and you think you're going to go into a three step match and they're going to know they can beat you because you you know your mom passed away or whatever the case may be these are these are conversations that need to be had so they they have to move forward
1: what are some of the specific things about being a an elite tennis player that you think caused just you know mental health challenges
0: i think it's a it's a loneliness it's it's an ongoing loneliness i think the what i just kind of spoke about was this idea that the only people that truly know what you're going through are your competitors and you don't really want to talk to them about it necessarily, like, you know, obviously I'm opening up a lot more, but for the most part, if, if you're, you know, going up to somebody who is, let's say a friend of yours and you're like, Hey man, like I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm missing home. I have no money. I don't know what to do. I don't know what my future looks like. I'm really struggling. I'm depressed. And then you play them, you know, tomorrow it's, you know, you lose that competitive edge, I guess a little bit. That's the fear in a lot of people's heads where, You know, we all deal with this. This should be open lines of communication or at least people there that aren't your competitors to at least help you through it a little bit. So it really is. It feels like that island that Agassiz always speaks about.
1: And where do you see yourself, uh, say, 10 years from now in terms of (laughs) where you are and what you're doing? What's what's the vision?
0: Uh, My life pivots in about a billion different directions every day. Um, It's exhausting. But yeah, I really do think that these tours will take off. We have a lot of amazing moving parts. We're starting our juniors this year, our pros and juniors full on next year. I mean, you know, we're looking at about 900 junior events next year and six professional events um, all in North America. So it's it's a tremendous undertaking. And we're excited because, you know, it's finally our opportunity to say, hey, this is what we believe is important and we're going to try it out. And nobody can tell us no. So we're excited about that. And and I really think that could push it along. So I, I want to be kind of the one of those pioneers, um, especially in the tennis world for mental health and doing something new and, and changing for the better, because I think a lot more people need help that um, you know, we know it. Everybody deals with it in their own way. So giving them that platform and that opportunity to, you know, educate themselves and, and feel safe um, is important, especially in a tennis world.
1: So if you were if you were the USTA besides paying more people a lot more money what, do you, <laughs> what would you introduce to try to um, alleviate some of the the suffering in this area
0: I think the number one thing that I tell a lot of kids that are you know asking about d1 colleges or what to do or go pro or you know whatever direction is you know I think the antiquated mentality of you have to put all your eggs in one basket you know and a you know an Olympic sport is super unique and I still don't know after even watching weight of gold and going through it I still don't know how I feel about it but the idea of eggs in one basket, I think, puts far too much pressure and is unnecessary at this point, especially in the world of tennis and and some other sports where, you know, if it's a kind of do or die situation, you know, the anxiety is tenfold. And I think people, especially after their career towards the tail end, don't know where they're going to go with their lives after. And I think that adds to a lot of the anxiety and and depression that people feel. So I feel like um, USCA has to work better at making sure there's more pathways, there's more educational pathways, there's more understanding that they're, you know, at the bare minimum, this is what a pro is going to get, they're going to get a, you know, college education, if they get to this point, whatever the case may be, just making sure that there's people there for them and people that they can talk to.
1: Yeah, it sure seems like at least in my experience that the times when I've just felt such immense pressure, which a lot of times i think it's a, it's a mental construct right like yeah. i remember doing an interview with someone who was a big deal on the nfl and i just felt so much pressure because at that time i was i was working for the nfl network and it was that was my job and that was <laughs> you know my everything and i look back and and i had a panic attack before doing that that shoot because i just felt so much pressure that i think my my body just couldn't handle it and i look back and at the time it was such a big deal but it's because i was framing it as being much more important than it actually was at that time. So it's this context of, you know, not feeling that pressure and being able to have um, some context that that seems to really uh, allow us to, to relax a little bit and, and live a more enjoyable life. Is that in a al- in alignment with what you've experienced?
0: Yeah, it's compartmentalizing and, and understanding what this is in the grand scheme of things. I you know I read a funny quote and I don't think this relates to everybody, but it, it worked for me. It said you know worrying about something is suffering through it twice, you know, and, and it's just it's so simple, but it stuck with me. It's saying, yeah, I know I'm going to put myself in the best position to succeed. And if that doesn't work, it doesn't work. I know that I'm going to put in the effort. I know I'm going to put in the hard yards. If that doesn't work, it doesn't work. I'm going to move on from there. But if I'm worrying about it, the weeks, months, years leading up to it, it's not going to be an enjoyable journey. And I've I've dealt with that more than a few times. And I think a lot of other people can learn from that as well as, you know, everybody says the journey is the best part. Enjoy it. If you're worrying each and every day about it, it's, I promise you that finish line is going to be the best part when you say I'm done with this. So it's, uh, it's just open communication and lines of that, of, of people, you know, having these, these talks and saying, Hey, it's going to be okay. You know, (laughs) it's going to be all right in the end. Just, just muscle through it a little bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Finding that balance and, and and getting around that worry. And I know in a sport like yours, I mean, you can always take more ground strokes. You can always, there's always more you can do. I know when I was playing baseball competitively for most of my young life, there was, I could always take more ground balls. I could always spend more time in the batting cage. Um, and I think not having necessarily as much balance made it stressful. How do you know when you've, you've hit enough ground strokes for the day? It's,
0: it's knowing yourself. And I think that goes into a deeper topic is, you know there are people that i talk to and i'm like you just don't truly know who you are yet and that's a difficult battle i think that goes into sports it's a confidence issue as well self esteem of knowing i'm doing the right thing i trust the process i trust what i'm doing i trust the people around me you know that's a very difficult thing is is looking around looking around the, you know wherever you're located the people around you and saying hey this is not okay right now. This is not beneficial for me. I have to change that. And that's a very difficult thing to admit, because life changes are very scary for people. So, you know, it's, yeah, I've gone to a point in my career where I, I know when I feel good, I don't, you know, it's, you know, I don't judge myself. I, I don't test myself and say, Hey, are you sure you're ready? I know, you know, I've done what I had to do for the day. I know I'm okay. And when I didn't do what I had to do, I say, Hey, that wasn't great. You know, let's pick it up the next day and be okay with that. So it's, it's knowing yourself, it's knowing the people around you and and trusting everybody.
1: Absolutely. And lastly, how can people support, uh, the BTR tour as it comes out from behind the COVID veil? Yeah, no, it's exciting. I mean, so we're, we're having we're going to
0: have four, possibly five pro events, uh, around the country that people can attend. And it's going to be a really incredible festival feel. Um, you know, you can follow us at the BTR and just check it out there. That has our juniors and our pros there. And we're going to be putting behind the racket stories on there as well. So that's kind of a full overview and you're going to get to uh, experience what we're bringing to the table in the next few months.
1: Very cool. Well, I'm definitely excited to come uh, check out one of these events. It sounds like the evolution of tennis and, uh, Noah, thanks so much for spending some time today.
0: No, that was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on.